The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. What does your energy future look like? Look to Hitachi ABB Power Grids for the advanced energy technologies needed to deliver real outcomes and futures, unlocking new revenue streams, maximizing renewable integration, and lowering carbon emissions. To find out more about Hitachi ABB Power Grids, visit the link in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long E Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long E supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S. A global market leader, Long E has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has breakthrough innovations at both the wafer and module level. We, we are not really seeing, except one or two cases, really solid just transition plants. Uh, it's more of at this stage it's more like okay we need to do something and you know like let's transition all these workers into renewable energy and, and things like that which is not really feasible the transition away from fossil fuels isn't a nice to have it's a must-have but it will disrupt entire classes of employment so how do we make the transition just this is the interchange I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm filling in for Khan this week, and we're going to replay a conversation that feels particularly relevant at the moment. We use the term energy transition to define markets, technology, business models, but what about people? Last week's IPCC report shows yet again that we need to phase out fossil fuels at a mass scale extremely fast, and that will bring jolting, often severe consequences to communities that depend on heavy industry or fossil fuel extraction. But it doesn't have to be so destructive. That's why the Biden team, for example, has allocated billions of dollars behind rural development, education, and worker retraining, many of those programs going to, for example, former coal communities. The phrase often used to describe this approach is the just transition, giving workers who depend on burning or extracting fossil fuels pensions, new jobs, new opportunities. But it's still a fairly new field of study and practice. And so we have a guest who's been researching and writing about this subject for years, Sandeep Pai. We brought Sandeep on the show last summer to talk about his work. He's the co-author of the book Total Transition, The Human Side of the Renewable Energy Revolution. He's a former journalist and doctoral student and public scholar. And today he's a senior research lead at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And we talked with Sandeep about his analysis of the strategies for transitioning fossil fuel workers in economies around the world. I really enjoyed it. If you haven't heard it, I think you will enjoy it too. So here's our conversation with Sandeep Pai. Okay, Shale, let's get into the topic at hand. I'm going to play a clip of a well-known politician attempting to grapple with this issue of the transition for fossil fuel workers. I want to get your reaction. I'm the only candidate which has a policy about how to bring economic opportunity using clean renewable energy as the key into coal country because we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. Right, Tim? And we're going to make it clear that we don't want to forget those people. Do you remember this moment? I do. Yeah. What happened? Oh, she got booze, right? Because she was in. Yeah. Did, wasn't she in West Virginia giving that speech? She was in Ohio. She's in Ohio. This is a campaign stop in Ohio. And she was trying to, Hillary Clinton was trying to lay out her plan for how to help coal communities. And as she wrote in her book, it just didn't come out right. Um, 
She was castigated for the remark about putting coal miners out of work. It haunted her throughout her campaign. It even caused coal miners to come and disrupt her events afterward. And um, she, she did talk about this in her book after the election. She said, I wish I could have found the words or emotional connection to make them believe how passionately I wanted to help their communities and their families. And she explained that, you know, the, the meaning behind her remarks was that she had a renewable energy transition plan in place and that she was going to help those people who were um, going to be out of work. But as you can tell, the language just didn't come out right. And it's one of the reasons why it's very difficult to have this conversation, uh, particularly in America with today's you know, political environment. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously inartfully worded um, and didn't convey the message that she meant to convey. But like you said, it's a thorny, it's really, it's tough. It's daunting to figure out how to talk about this stuff in a way that is empathetic, but also reflects, you know, a uh, a really aggressive stance toward combating climate change simultaneously and say that to people who are undeniably going to be affected by this. It's it's tricky. It's why I'm, I'm sort of excited for this conversation because I've never figured out a way to um, feel really comfortable in my shoes when I'm talking about it. Well, very few people have, and that's why we have barely started talking about this transition, barely begun grappling with the economic consequences of abandoning large swaths of the fossil fuel industry and therefore the fossil fuel workforce, right? What are we going to do with folks who are facing this uncertain future. And that's exactly what we're talking about today. And we have a guest who's been researching and writing about this subject for years. His name is Sandeep Pai. Sandeep, welcome. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. We're thrilled to have you here. We've been reading your research. So Sandeep is a former journalist. He's a current PhD student and public scholar at the Institute of Resources, Environment, and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. And he recently co-wrote an analysis looking at the peer-reviewed literature and reports about the just transition and came up with a list of these proposed strategies for transitioning fossil fuel workers. Um, Sandeep, you worked for several years in South Asia as a as journalist. You wrote for national and international newspapers and magazines. You also are the author of a book called Total Transition, The Human Side of the Renewable Energy Revolution. So the human piece of this transition has been really central to your work. Why? Why have you devoted your research to the social dimensions of the energy transition? Okay, I mean, that's a really good question. So like you mentioned, I started as a journalist in India. And in my very early years of journalism, um, I had the opportunity to work with an editor who said, you know, go, do not cover energy issues sitting in Delhi or Bombay. Just go to these places, you know, talk to people, report about different energy uh, policies and how it impacts, you know, these areas and what are the conversations going on. And so that's the one piece of it. The second piece was India, India had a big scam or, or, uh, you know, a corruption allegation that came out about uh, unlawful allocation of coal blocks, uh, across the country. And, and so for that also, I was sent to all these coal mines and, you know, power plants and uh, all these different like uh, supply chain uh, locations. Uh, and I met thousands of workers, people, engineers, you know, from, you know, people who are blasting um, for mountaintop removal uh, to people who are working in power plants. 
I mean, and one thing that was fascinating was that all of them were told or they believed that, you know, they are doing something larger. They are providing the fuel, they're providing the electricity uh, that is needed for India's, you know, uh, growth and development. And so there was a, there's a lot of pride among people that I met. Um, and I mean, I also got to understand the scale of this problem. I mean, I was not thinking from a problem, from a point of view of climate change at that point, but, um, but just the fact that how many people, how, how many towns are associated with these industries was just an eye opener. So that was like my early years of journalism and I got introduced to this topic. And at that time, primarily in India, climate change was not really like a, you know, like a hot topic, as I would say it is uh, now. And the demands for climate action was not huge. Um, but I, some of the conversations started penetrating and I understood that, you know, it we must move away from these dirty industries uh, for uh, and move towards low carbon sources, but I was just curious what's what is going to happen to these people. Like you know, will we just abandon them, or or you know, sort of like, is there a plan? And so that was my curiosity that sort of led me into this topic. So I want you to read something for me. Let, let's read the first paragraph of the introduction to your book because I do think it's quite powerful and sets the stage well. His eyes, set in a weathered face, were red from the coal dust blowing through the village. Standing next to his house, dressed in a skirt like lungi, and a dirty yellow and grey strip work shirt, he told us, quote, The coal industry is dirty and I am dying a slow death living here, but I have no other option. A thin and wiry coal worker, Suresh Bhuya, was vocal about his situation when we met him in Jharia, the heart of India's coal mining belt. Quote, If I got the opportunity, I would love to work in the solar industry. But how will I find a job? My present is painful, but the future is uncertain. My present is painful, but the future is uncertain. That's so powerful. What does Suresh represent? To me, Suresh represents millions of fossil fuel workers. Uh, I wouldn't say all of them, but a lot of them are suffering due to climate, you know, due to environmental and health reasons. Uh, so Suresh represents these millions of workers who are really worried about their future, who are really worried about what is going to happen to them. Will they be abandoned? Will politicians take care of them? Will there be policies to make sure that that children continue to go to school? They have uh, continuous income. Uh, and their communities continue to flourish. Uh, Suresh also represents someone who would resist politically and resist hard if one doesn't take care of them uh, and one doesn't implement just transition policies that are just not for the sake of saying, but are really meaningful. Um, you know, it is concrete and is planned. And now increasingly many people globally are believing, especially in the climate movement, that it is an imperative that we take care of people like Suresh. It's Im- it's important from an ethical and um, justice uh, point of view. Two things strike me from what you've been saying so far. The first is, um, this perhaps will come as no surprise to many folks in the audience, but nonetheless, I think, you know, 
being here in the United States with a typically American-centric mindset, when we think often of the just transition, and particularly in light of like political events over the past few years, we're often thinking of places in the U.S., like Ohio, as we mentioned before, and West Virginia, and other sort of coal-centric communities in the United States. Uh, this is very much a, a global issue, certainly in any uh, regions that have significant fossil fuel extraction and utilization. One of the things that I appreciated about the research that you just published that that we'll talk about is that it was very global in nature. You looked at 33 different articles, of which 11 were focused on the U.S., nine were global, a bunch in Australia, which is another country that has a big issue here. And so I'm curious, um, just at the high level, what you think is similar across the way that individual countries or regions are facing this just transition issue um, and what's different? It's it's a very interesting and very important question. Give me a, give me two minutes to explain this. Um, so I divide this problem into two sort of like two sets of countries, all of which are major fossil fuel producers. Um, and this is a bigger problem uh, for countries that produce fuel uh, because most jobs in fossil fuel industries are on the fuel side, uh, coal mining and oil and gas extraction, then uh, refineries also have some jobs, but um, but say compared to power plants. Uh, so let me divide these countries into two. Uh, one is countries where the climate movement is very strong. Um, and you could say in some senses, US, Australia, Germany, you know, the, the West, uh, where there is increasing pressure on governments uh, to move away from fossil fuels. And, and so there is more of a conversation about this topic. I would say there's, there's more awareness about this topic compared to the rest of the world. Then we take countries like India and China, which have huge fleets of very young power plants. It's very different from like the West, where the power plant's average age is, I think, something like 40, where India and China is like 16 or 11. And, you know, mining and uh, and and the supporting mining industry. So for these countries, these conversations haven't even started. And that is problematic. I mean, it's problematic for both levels, because where the conversation has started, we we are not really seeing, except one or two cases, really solid just transition plants. Uh, it's more of at this stage, it's more like, okay, we need to do something and, you know, like, let's transition all these workers into renewable energy and, and things like that, which is not really feasible. Um, and for countries like India, this conversation hasn't even started, but the scale of dependence on these jobs are much higher in these countries. I feel like the conversation has barely started here as well. You heard the clip of Hillary Clinton. You've mentioned her in your research as well. I mean, she got attacked relentlessly for attempting to have that conversation. And I don't think that our political system is, even in a country like the U.S., where we're advanced in the climate conversation, we're capable of really talking about it in a sophisticated way. I 100% agree. Uh, but the fact that there is a conversation is a good start. There is no conversation in India, for example. The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. The grid is evolving, it's changing every day, but the fundamentals haven't. Safe, reliable power is needed everywhere. 
No matter where you are, battery storage paired with advanced controls and software can improve resiliency and efficiency. With GridEdge solutions from Hitachi ABB Power Grids, you can integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals while managing energy costs, and it's achievable with their innovative GridEdge solutions. Learn more by visiting the link in the show notes. The interchange is also brought to you by Longy Solar, leading the solar PV industry to new heights with product innovation and breakthrough monocrystalline technologies. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market cap of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs. With Longy's products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced best-in-class solar technology. Reflecting on both your quote from the Indian coal miner and what Hillary Clinton said, and, and, you know, the Indian coal miner said, I'd love to get a job in solar, but how would that even happen? And, you know, what Hillary Clinton basically tried to say, apart from the really inartful wording of we're going to put a lot of coal companies out of business, I mean, what, what she, I think, was saying at a high level is what you hear a lot from, I think, progressive politicians in the United States, which is like, well, we will replace the dirty fossil fuel jobs with new clean energy jobs. And I wonder, first of all, from a rhetorical standpoint, um, how what you've seen in terms of how the what the reaction looks like from fossil fuel workers when they hear that is it just that they don't believe it because they haven't seen it um is it that they're not interested like what's what's the reaction so this is again again a really great question and i love this question um so i mean generally the working class has been cheated it, it's a global phenomenon whenever industries have declined be it steel in the us or textile or the cord in like you know atlantic cord in canada or many industries small scale or large scale that have declined governments have not done an adequate job generally i mean there may be some cases here and there and some examples of certain programs working well but by and large the perception and uh, for one of my research i read extensively on this topic the overall income levels have gone down, even if they have found the next job. Uh, you know, there have been massive health issues associated with that, that children were not able to go to school. So generally, the working class doesn't believe that something will come of this. And then when somebody goes in and most of the rhetoric, again, problematically is associated with or oh, transition to clean energy jobs. I think that's a really problematic problem. In one of my own research, we show that there's a complete mismatch between areas suitable for solar and wind power uh, in India, China, Australia, and US. So we looked at four countries. And especially wind is like, I think, very, way, way far. Solar still is okay for countries, some parts of India and Australia. Like from a pure techno-economic suitability point of view, solar and wind cannot cut it in those local areas. Now, you could believe that some would move, but but it's not easy to just move, wrap up everything, your real estate and, you know, whatever little housing money you have. So people, I think that there is some suspicion that this is not going to happen. One problem is that we don't have a lot of evidence of this happening well. And the second problem is that right now, all of these conversations are pretty much at conversation and dialogue stage. And even in those countries, there's no sort of like real 
hardcore plans of okay your jobs you're guaranteed a job or whatever i'm not advocating for one thing or the other but like uh, it's one thing to say uh, you know i will transform this region using clean renewable energy it's another thing to say these are the five plans i will implement so i think that's something that is missing this is a really important point to hang on because what happens happens is that very rarely workers who are impacted are not going into equivalent jobs in industry. They're often going into lower paying retail jobs, for example. And so a lot of government retraining programs here in the United States have not been very effective. And so, as you said, the track record is not very good. And so there's a lot of inherent cynicism about yes. what jobs yeah. are available when, say, the extraction jobs go to go away. Absolutely. There was a paper about OECD countries and they looked at all the retraining programs and the outcomes of related to that and it was pretty clear that most people who found jobs a went to retail industries or some such um and b were had to settle with lower paying much much lower paying jobs and just one point i think it's important to add here is that in most countries for direct fossil fuel jobs are very well paid jobs um and and so it's a huge it's a huge change and and there is a structural reason for that uh, when we think about north america and europe and you know the private companies which run these fossil fuel uh, industries uh, they they pay their workers fine but when you look at majority of where the fossil fuel production happens the middle east india china like 60% of fossil fuel production is done by government owned companies so they have a dual mandate to produce energy but also engage in welfare of the country and citizens so if you look at coal india and uh, this is the last point if you look at coal india limited which is the world's largest coal mining company uh, in its in its documents it will mention that the need the role is to produce coal an important source of energy but also take care of people and communities around and it does spend a lot of money in those regions building schools hospitals and so on so i think we've we've done a fairly good job so far of laying out all the reasons this is really hard do we have any examples of regions or communities that have gone through such a transition either specifically with regard to the just transition away from fossil fuels or even in other sectors as well um that have done it right like do we have some shining beacon we can look toward <laughs> um i think that uh i wouldn't say it's 100% great but i think that one of the one of the few of the good examples come from hard coal mining in germany um it was it is often said or cited as a successful case where the german government i mean the the reason was that the hard coal mining sort of was you know economically uh, more expensive than say imported coal uh, and so the so from an economics point of view it made sense to shut down these mines but i mean uh, politically it was hard so the german government both at the federal level and at the state and you know sort of like whatever the the local level came together along with a very strong and powerful union that was operating in that region and came up with a just transition plan and the, there was two distinct features of that plan that i think is often sort of a benchmark in this space 
One is that they guaranteed that any worker who has worked for 20 years um, can, uh, at the age of uh, 48, can sort of retire and get a stipend, which which was good, good. Uh, and at the and when they retire, they'll continue to get pension. And all the younger workers had sort of gotten a guaranteed job and retraining. Um, and that was sort of guaranteed by the government so that went down really well and they made this as a long term plan for 10 years so this plan was made in 27 or 2007 and subsequently updated and the last hard coal mining was finished in germany in 2018 so what does that tell us about the elements that are necessary for this transition i'm hearing two very important things and that is a guaranteed pension and guaranteed wages Yeah. So I would say I would start with something like a really long-term vision and planning. Uh right now the problem in the just transition space is that many people, groups, governments are completely sort of doing it, you know, on their own and and there is no coordinated planning. So if I were to start thinking about an important element of just transition, my first would be an over-encompassing element of uh sort of like long term strategic planning where you create a mechanism by which the federal government and the states or the provinces and the local governments who would be impacted as 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 well as the workers and the union representatives come together and negotiate a plan that makes economic and political sense uh so that i think is one of the key elements of just transition without that what would happen is that certain regions because of certain interventions may might do well but most regions will not see the same fruit so first is long term planning and it's important to recognize areas that are vulnerable to decarbonization we don't even really know that we can say that okay any area which is close to a coal mine or a power plant is vulnerable from a risk point of view of you know economic losses but it's important to do those studies and recognize areas vulnerable to decarbonization in every country so that's my first coming back to the wages and the pensions let's start with wages first uh, so i mean so one of the things is that we always refer to just transition from the point of view of those direct fossil fuel workers who are mi- working in say coal mines or power plants or rigs etc but there are millions of indirect jobs that that get benefited from that benefits from the continuation of coal or oil industries uh there's induced jobs so people working in cafes and restaurants you know where coal workers go and spend their money uh, and studies show that uh the ratio of indirect jobs and induced jobs are 1 is to 10 and 1 is to 8 in some cases it depends on the country and the context so we are talking about one coal worker sort of uh, and their spending and uh, supporting eight other workers so it's a huge deal so when we start these conversations about wages it's it's really important that we recognize both direct workers and indirect and induced workers because as one very uh, one union leader told me that you know the coal industry may be divided in normal days and you know the unions are fighting against each other the the workers are fighting the coal companies but when you attack their industry 
all direct indirect induced and every kind of worker will come together and resist so it's really important to think about the wages uh from the point of view of whether you can actually compensate wages for all different workers the last piece of it is pension and it's a really really important topic and completely ignored in the context of just transition thus far uh so in some countries the pension model is that you know like in canada the pension is run by the federal government so it doesn't really matter if coal declines or any other country declines like government of canada will continue to pay that pension but in india pension is managed by or or even in some other i think in us too uh, the pension is a contribution of the worker 50% in some cases and the contribution of the coal company so they contribute to this fund which pays out when the worker retires so if you cut the coal industry uh i think that that's going to affect a lot of workers and in terms of just sheer numbers there are more coal pensioners in india than coal miners today in the direct coal industry that's the same case in the us as well so so this is also we are talking about a lot of people uh, and if you add their families and 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 so on so it's it's really a huge thing we have to think about and it's important that we ensure that people who have worked in the mines for like 100 you know like for their lifetime pretty much are taken care of when they retire in most cases with some health issues so the elements to adjust transition you just outlined are extraordinarily complicated and you mentioned at the beginning of the show that this is a conversation that is starting to gain some level of sophistication in, in a place like the United States where we've been talking about climate change for a while but still it's extraordinarily nascent and i feel like a lot of the environmental groups and activists have not done a great job of framing the complexity of this issue. They just say shut down fossil fuels and there's really no follow-up to explain how you would do that from a workforce perspective. Um has the conversation gotten better? Are you hearing environmental groups, progressive groups start to integrate some of these uh concrete examples in the way they frame this issue? We 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 have to take this in uh, in sort of like two two periods one was the pre covid period where most of the conversations most of the slogans that i heard was about shutting down the fossil fuel infrastructure um and it basically stopped there but now i have seen increasingly you know when governments are starting to think about bailout packages for fossil fuel industries um I have seen that many activists especially in North America have 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 started saying that you know uh, let's let's kill the industry but support the workers uh, and that I think is a really positive change in terms of nuances I'm not very sure if that has emerged yet but uh, but at least it's a good start that's so interesting that you're thinking about this issue pre-covid and post-covid because one thing that strikes me about what's happening right now is that the government it, the US government and governments around the world are spending trillions of dollars on stimulus packages and as far as i can tell and please tell me what the numbers look like but if you're bailing out an industry uh say the coal industry in the united states it would cost maybe hundreds of uh, hundreds of billions of dollars you know we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars each bill to protect workers right now so feasibly if we're tossing around those numbers you could imagine the government spending a big chunk of change that 
at this moment in time seems perfectly reasonable to help the, that workforce make the transition to give them guaranteed wages and pensions. So do you feel like this changes the art of the possible in any way? It does. I mean, so again, just thinking about it from a cost point of view, there are some studies which show that you don't really need a ton of money. But I would like to add a caveat here that we are only and all these studies are only referring to direct jobs, not indirect and indirect induced jobs. So if we just focus on, for example, direct jobs, then in the US, you really need 600 million a year according to one study. Uh, of course, they don't take into account everything, even for direct jobs, but you need uh, $600 million every year to, to guarantee wages for five years for fossil fuel workers who lose their employment. And that their scenario is also that, you know, U.S. reduces emissions by 40% by 2035. So it's not talking about all workers, and it's not a complete 100% fossil fuel phase out. But if you reduce emissions by 40% and its impact on coal, oil and natural gas, the country would need 600 million per year, which I would argue is not, I mean, compared to the bailout trillions of dollars of bailout packages we are talking about, um, it seems that it's feasible. I mean, one of the issues, I think there's a, a couple of issues probably there though right even if you do that one you've you've guaranteed wages and pensions perhaps for for some number of years but you haven't you know these communities that are entirely reliant on a single industry don't get any long-term support and so after the five years runs out or when people take those wages and they move somewhere else where there's more opportunity you still end up with these hollowed out communities which we've seen in the industrial midwest in the u.s as well that feels like one challenge to me. And the other challenge, not to get too deep in the political weeds, but you know the the idea of guaranteeing wages and pensions, um, you've got a, a you know an entire half of the political spectrum in the United States that sort of tends to oppose anything that looks like an increase in the welfare state, and so I, I imagine that presents a challenge for getting something like that done. So do, do those two things? First of all, those real challenges and second of all do they seem surmountable to you so i mean what what we are discussing here what people have researched are all very theoretical ideas at this stage i mean it's almost like a, an idea of 100% renewable energy in some senses which which has a market force here there's no market also uh, so it makes it even more harder and it's even more sort of reliant on political intervention and how it would play out and whether the political class or the half of the U.S. that you're referring to would even accept this kind of idea is, is totally an open question, right, at this point. I think we need to establish the why we're having this conversation. I set out some of the stakes at the beginning of the show, but what is the urgency in establishing legitimate policy to transition, you know, segments of the fossil fuel workforce. I mean, what is the science telling us? And what does that mean for how quickly we need to implement policies and bring together unions and local leaders and actually like get people to trust that this transition will be in their benefit? I mean, so depending on which models you choose, uh, it's very, very clear that we have to move away from all fossil fuels. Um, uh, the the exact you know the numbers and the pace is 
is sort of depending on again the models but it's clear that by in the next one or two or three decades we have to substantially reduce our share of fossil fuels starting with coal but also other other fossil fuels so from a scientific point of view it's absolutely necessary to move away from these sources if we have to meet you know well below 2 degree targets in line with the paris agreements um but that has again implications on a large number of people and yeah what does that mean in terms of number of people i mean like have you quantified the number of people that will lose or need to transition their jobs so according to our estimates and this is again only direct jobs and i would say direct jobs are a small share of the overall jobs that are dependent on uh, the fossil fuel industry uh, only in terms of direct jobs we we have estimated around 12 million direct jobs and we don't account for all categories of direct jobs because of sheer uh, sheer difficulty in calculating some of the job numbers and that's a global number uh, so when we say 12 million we are talking about maybe i don't know into 3 or 4 per family so if when you if you want to add the family um so so that's the direct now then there is indirect and there is induced then pensioners it's it's just very hard to quantify there's one more other aspect i think that is really really important in this context is that jobs is one aspect of just transition and very important and central aspect of just transition the other key aspect is local revel- revenues lots of lots of places in india lots of pl- counties perhaps in the us are dependent on local revenues from this dominant industry and that if those revenue streams are not replaced that would have serious implications for the whole sort of like the community even if somebody is not getting anything from the coal industry so that's another thing and the last piece of this is railways often an ignored uh, part of this this puzzle uh, i'll take give the example of india 50% of railway freight revenues come from coal and railway has 1.3 million people working in india um so and the model in india is that you uh, subsidize the passenger segment and uh, sort of like you know you overcharge the coal coal freight and so that that also has serious implications for sort of that industry and and so on and i mean there's much more but i would stop here <laughs> i do want to make one other point though which is you know steven you're asking sort of how many in order to meet our uh 2 degree target or anything like that from a climate change perspective how how fast will we need to move away from this and that's a that's a good question but it is worth noting that you know i think mar- market trends will um perhaps more slowly cause a lot of this to happen anyway certainly with coal um maybe over a much, much longer period of time with with other fossil fuels but in the case of coal right like the coal industry is in decline certainly in in western countries tendi you can tell me the latest status in in china and india but you know this is a this is a the just transition is relevant whether you are taking really significant action on climate change or not right just from a pure political and economic development standpoint you need to figure out what to do about these communities either way i it's it's a really really good observation and there are also studies which show that general industrial decline wherever they have happened and if the interventions were not good 
um, has led to communities moving in their political right. So uh, they are supporting candidates who have extreme views. Uh, it's, I mean, the, the interesting thing in Germany is where the coal is declining, the lignite, the the right parties, you know, the party AFD, uh, which believes in anti-immigrant and those sentiments, so uh, are rising. So this economic insecurity is uh, is kind of sometimes uh, there is some relation between the rise of sort of these extreme political and social movements. Should we just nationalize these industries and basically essentially like buy out these power plants and coal mines and guarantee wages and just take this top down approach? I, I feel like I've heard a lot more people propose that here in the US, at least, um, that we should just buy out the coal industry, make people whole. And um, it's as simple as that. What, what are your thoughts on some of the proposals you've seen or this top down approach? I mean, it's a good point, but I just don't see any evidence from history that this will lead to an energy transition. Um, and the funny thing is that I I keep telling this, that 60% of fossil fuel production is not done by private companies. It's done by government-owned companies. You have the Saudi Aramco's of the world to coal India to all the state-owned enterprises in China, Petrobras. I mean, these are already owned by the government. So if you're only talking about US, it's a big decision. So I would, we need to see some evidence of this really happening. If you were an advisor to, say, a Joe Biden administration, and we have a Democrat who comes in and takes this seriously, what would you tell him and his staff about what they should be doing to set the stage for real decision making that will help us truly grapple with phasing out the fossil fuel industry from a workforce perspective? The first thing I would do is or I would propose is that you do an extensive consultation in all fossil fuel regions. Based the the objective of the consultation should be that we are thinking of phasing out fossil fuel. Um, I mean, there's no easy way. So you have to start these conversations uh, and 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 then come up with a plan and say, okay, so based on what people think, we, we are going to phase out these industries in X and Y year in different jurisdictions uh, and then have a really concrete plan engaging with these people. One thing that is very clear is that not everybody loves these industries. People, this is their economic, you know, this this is their job and this is what brings food to table, but not everyone in these regions or not every fossil fuel worker is, you know, completely committed to this industry. So you have to tap into those areas. Not all unions are still sort of like gaga over, you know, coal continuation of coal mining. So there are some cracks there, which which one has to explore depending on the region and, and, and the places. And and it should not be a top-down decision. It, that would be a disaster, saying we are phasing out coal in U.S. in 2030. I would not start with that. I would I would start with consulting and coming with up with a plan, which is concrete, before I announce a date, for example. Yeah, in some ways, this the state. I mean, it's easier said than done, but it it does seem like the the order of operations sort of matters here, and this is perhaps 
part of where the problems have been in the past when Hillary Clinton says, we're going to shut down a bunch of these businesses and give you a bunch of clean energy jobs. But the people in those communities actually have seen no evidence that those clean energy jobs are are there at their doorstep awaiting them. Then, of course, they are skeptical that that is going to be real. And as you said, Sandeep, there's plenty of evidence in history that the government won't provide. So if you get the opportunity, it feels like you act first and then talk about it after. So it feels to me like the biggest, most complicated piece of this is not what plan works, what region can you implement this in. It's all about identity. And plenty of people who work in fossil fuel extraction have the most terrible jobs. They probably don't like their jobs, but there's a certain identity, um, a political or geographical identity tied to them that is extremely hard to break. And that's the piece that I really don't know how you get around. That to me feels like one of the more difficult pieces of this transition. And that gets back to how you cover this, the human side, the identity that people have with their jobs that uh, maybe is the hardest part to change. Absolutely. But I also believe that if you offer people a reasonable option, um, some of these identity issues could be, I'm not saying all, there's no you know binary zero or one, but... Um, like especially with younger workers uh they may they may be willing to try something new it's i mean one is the serious you know identity issue of having let's say cricket clubs in india and like fo- soccer clubs and you know you are part of you go underground together and then you play these soccer and there's a lot of identity issues there but it's also the lack of alternative opportunities that that really matters. If if even before I want to shut down this power plant in this town, if I go there and provide people with something that I'm not saying it's exor- it should be exorbitant, but like something that they see value in, um, people might be willing to try it. Sandeep Pai is the co-author of Total Transition, the human side of the renewable energy revolution. What did you think of the conversation? Give us a rating to let us know how we're doing. Tweet at us at Interchange Show. Send us an email to contact at postscriptaudio.com. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Media. It is executive produced by me, Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Dalvin Abuaji. And uh, Shell Khan's our host. He'll be back next week. This is The Interchange.